this is going to be the transition from back from the Tudor dynasty back to the continent. And our goal is to get through uh, the Calvinists and where they, they are going to increase and, and move themselves into different areas throughout Europe. Uh, they also go by different names in different places. Many of the Calvinists have very similar traditional backgrounds from a doctrinal standpoint, but they have very different um, groups. Uh, the three major Calvinist groups are obviously the Calvinists themselves, led by Calvin, and, and that's in Calvin's Geneva. In France, that group will be called the Huguenots, which are French Calvinists, and they will have their own set of issues as well. Um, and the other group that is an offshoot of Calvinism, which has a very similar concepts, very similar concepts, are the Puritans. Um, and many of the Puritans obviously have their own doctrinal uh, differences with the Calvinists, but a lot of the same characteristics can be said about the Puritans, as can be said about the Huguenots, as can be said about the Calvinists, and even some of the Lutherans and other places throughout Europe. And the thing that we did allude to yesterday or on Monday was the fact that the Protestants specifically are going to become known, become known for that concept of the Protestant work ethic. And the reason that the Protestant work ethic is so important and integral to what we are talking about is that it actually is a uh, byproduct of how Calvin organized his society and how Calvin looked at predestination and his, the, the central themes of the, his version of Christianity. Uh, and Calvin's the one, and in your notes you could write this down, he wrote a book called The Institutes on the Christian Religion. And Calvin's teaching will kind of center around the whole concept of predestination, which we will get into in more detail going forward. Now, to start with, many of the Protestants early on met together in different time periods to try to get along. The problem they found is that while they had many theological similarities, they had many theological differences. And because those differences were what they were, they will just decide to agree to disagree and will move on and not create a consolidated Protestant denomination. Originally, they wanted to say, oh, all the Lutherans, all the Zwinglians, all the Calvinists, we're going to try this together. And then Calvin was like, mm, no, I don't really agree with Luther on enough to even make the meeting. And then Zwingli was like, I'll try. I'll, I'll try to make it work. And so Zwingli's there and he's like, well, we agree on this 90% of things, but we disagree. And actually the, the thing that came out of the meeting between Zwingli and Luther was we agree on most everything, but... And that becomes really the, the basis for these splits within the Protestant faith, uh, which create multiple denominations. And I, I know I've shown you that umbrella where the Protestant term becomes that umbrella that's anything that's Christian that's not Catholic. But remember that that could be 100 different denominations by the time you get to about 1800. So over the course of the next 200 years, 250 years, you're going to see splinterings of all sorts of things. You know, the Puritans aren't going to be the Puritans forever. They're going to splinter into other things. Um, and that is the case to this day. You know, if you just took America alone today and looked at the Protestant faith in America, I guarantee you could probably get close to 100, if not more, denominations of Protestant faiths in America today. Um, and all of those people would consider themselves Christian or Protestant as the blanket term, uh, but they would be very different denominations. And the reason that that's important is that early on, these differences will kind of become the underlying factor of what is coming, and that is the religious conflict or religious wars. And remember at the beginning of this class, I talked about the concept where history is really the back and forth between freedom and security. And what Luther does with his 95 Theses is he will unintentionally open Pandora's box. Because what he's saying is that the power structure, the monolithic power structure that has dominated Europe for over a thousand years is wrong. And then everyone's like, everyone else is saying, well, if that's the case, then this is what I think. And they're not all thinking the same thing as Luther, right? 
Many of them are saying, well, this is what I read in the scripture. And Luther's like, well, I read that too, but it means this. And he's like, no, it means this. And these conflicts will end up becoming kind of underlying factors for religious wars later. So if the period of the Reformation and the Renaissance is a period of freedom, would we agree on that? That this period of the humanists, the Christian humanists, the Reformation period is kind of humans going, we want more freedom or, or freedom of thought at the very least. Then what do you think is coming next? After they have a period of war, which is going to be the end of that freedom period, they're going to have religious wars. And then after the religious wars, we have the period called the age of absolutism, where we go back to really strong singular rulers. Yes, Bryn? Isn't that kind of like the cycle of how history kind of goes? That is how the cycle of history goes. You go through a period of freedom and then you find yourself, oh no, we're scared because everyone's dying because you're having a period of war, revolts, all that conflict. And they're like, give me just safety. I'll take safety. And in their day, safety meant a singular powerful ruler that was safer than anything else. And the person who argues for that is Sir Thomas Hobbes. Sir Thomas Hobbes lived during the English Civil War. And he's going, that whole democracy thing that you guys are trying in England is making my country incredibly unsafe. And I would rather be under the rule of a singular ruler that can get things done very quickly. Now, is it a perfect thing? No. But is it the best that we got? At the time, Sir Thomas Hobbes said, yeah, it was the best we have. Um, so when we get to the peasant revolts, this is where we start seeing the duplicity of Luther. And the truth is, Luther himself I would argue, did not intend to create revolts. And actually, if you read the document that you were supposed to read for the close reading assignment, he starts the document that way. He goes, you did not begin this way, but you've lost your way, is kind of how the document goes. And now, at the end of the document, he will basically say, you guys are the worst you're just like the Anabaptists, which in those terms is like saying today, you're like a Nazi. It's like the worst thing you can call someone back then is an Anabaptist. And what Luther is saying to them is, you guys have lost your way so much that I have to condemn you now for this. You're going to hell if you continue on this path. Um, and what I think Obviously, the 95 Theses opens Pandora's box for new Protestant religions and denominations, but it also opens Pandora's box in regards to society because societies in general will start going, oh, if we're questioning traditional power structures, then why don't we have more power as peasants? Or why don't we have more representation or any representation or maybe just more food or maybe just a little bit more money? And... Here's the thing I want to, and this is the point I want to try to make to you guys right now, and, and I will confirm this as we go through history. Revolts that are centered in peasantry or poor people will never work. In the course of history, poor revolutions don't work. Now, there is one revolution that is almost an exception. But I, so... The Russian Revolution is a possible exception, but I would argue that the Russian Revolution is a completely different type of revolution than it is, and probably poorly named. Because the truth is, the Russian Revolution begins with the king, or the czar, abdicating the throne. And so what the Russian Revolution really is, is a civil war. Because when you have the absence of power... Now you have the opportunity to fight for the power of that seat. And that's really what the Russian Revolution is. And is it revolutionary? Absolutely. But Russia had multiple revolts before you get the Russian Revolution. And many of those revolts were poor revolts that do not work. And the reason that the Russian Revolution works is that it has some of the characteristics that other revolutions have that are successful. To be fair, the people that were leading the Russian Revolution are generally not poor. They're actually your upper middle class. 
which is the characteristic of most revolutions. So I realized that the Russian Revolution wants to be a revolution of the poor because that's what communism is kind of the whole concept of communism is that it's the poor working man is going to rise up and that kind of thing. But the truth is many of those communists were actually from relatively well-off positions enough to be relatively middle class. Um, so I would argue that the Russian revolution is more of an exception than the rule. The uh, American revolution, the French revolution, the English Civil War, I would also argue that the Russian Revolution follows these trends. Um, they all have the same characteristics that it centers around the bourgeois or the nouveau rich, meaning the upper middle class that has a lot of wealth but no power. Why is it that peasant revolts don't work? What is their biggest issue? And this is why I argue that the Russian Revolution, even though it is somewhat of an exception, really isn't a poor revolution. Yeah. They don't have enough money to get armies and provide all the things that you need to do to form a revolution, and they don't know enough about the power structures to form their own government. Yeah, you, so I'll give you the characteristics of successful revolutions, and I'll tell you why this doesn't fit a peasant revolt. Successful revolutions have to have enough funds or access to food. If you're poor... The easiest way to put down a poor peasant revolt is just to wait because eventually they're going to get hungry. And when you're hungry, you go home and go work, go to work again because you want to feed your family. So if you're poor, you generally cannot wait. If you're the upper middle class or the rich people like the Puritans were in England, they had access to food because they were wealthy. Many of them were very wealthy. They had the Protestant work ethic, meaning that they had a lot of money, actually, many of them. They just had no representation in Parliament. And then they start getting representation in Parliament, and then they're like, we want more power than we currently have. Um, it's the same in the French Revolution. The French Revolution is not a poor revolution. The first phase is called the bourgeois phase, where you have the upper middle class, the nouveau rich, the people that have wealth but no power, revolting. So... Having support of the peasants is helpful, but having the peasants lead a revolution will not work. The, the first reason is food. The second reason is organization, because they generally don't have much of it. And the other issue when you're a peasant trying to organize things is that you don't have the funds or money or ability to organize yourselves. And so if you asked a peasant revolt, what do you want? And you ask the next person, what do you want? And what do you want? They're all going to say, we're revolting because we want something, but it's not going to be the same thing. And that's the difference between a successful revolution and an unsuccessful revolution. If you have a revolution that doesn't have a goal, where are you going? You're, you're not going to have a successful revolution. If they can't tell you what you want, that revolution is going to fail. Um, and that movement will fail. And it's the same with a movement. Uh, do you guys remember the... The, Wall, the Occupy Wall Street movement? Yeah, a bunch of people just came into Wall Street, set up tents, sat down, everything like that. I don't think they knew what they were doing, but they were just literally... Yeah, they didn't. <laughs> so the problem with Occupy Wall Street is everyone's like, we are the 99%. And they're like, what do you want? Uh-huh. <laughs> the, the problem was they had an idea. They thought that, hey, Wall Street is hosing us. They're, they're the reason that the average middle class doesn't have access to wealth. And then you go to the people that were in charge of it, and you're like, well, what do you want? And every single one of them would give you a different answer. That's why we don't remember Occupy Wall Street, is because they, they didn't have a consolidated movement. And it's like, this is what we believe. Movements that actually work, they have good messaging, and you know exactly what they want. Even if that's a relatively obscure thing, I'll give you an example, and this is quite honestly a very good example, even though some of you may not even like it. Make America Great Again is great messaging. It is. You can't argue that. If you ask someone who is a Make, a great, make America Great Again person, they can always just go back to that. You're like, well, what do you want? I want to make America great again. 
even if they can't tell you what that means or when America was great, the messaging is good, meaning that it's something someone can go, I want to do that. If you have no organization and you can't do that, your revolution or your movement will fail. You have to have something that people can quickly go, that's what we're doing. Does that make sense? And if you can't do that, your revolution is going to fail very quickly. Um, and the, the last thing I think that we got to make sure to, to kind of draw out here as we're going forward to other revolutions is that when you, when you know what your goal is, you have to stop there. And the reason I say that is because the French Revolution is a really good example of when they didn't do that. Like the, the French Revolution passes the Declaration of the Rights of Man. They change society drastically. And then they're like, let's just keep going. Let's do all of it at the same time. They changed the calendar from a seven-day week to a 10-day week. They changed the, like, they, they renamed the months into other, they got rid of Christianity completely. They, they did everything at the same time. And all the people that didn't live in Paris were like, um, excuse me, uh, what are you doing? And most of the people even in Paris are like, wait a second, you turned my seven-day work week into a 10-day work week. Now I'm working longer. How is that better? Well, they're like, no, no, they're decades now. They're even. They're not seven. They're tens. And they're like, but I'm working longer. They're like, but it was a good idea. And we should do it. They also came up with the, um, the metric system. That's brilliant. Metric system's brilliant. But while they were doing the metric system, they came up with a new calendar that the peasants were like, I'm working longer now. This isn't better. Um, so it, it's one of those things where you have to kind of know when you've arrived at the safe spot of we've, we've revolted, we, we, we completed this, we're good. If you go past that, you actually do the opposite. And this is the reason the French have five republics. They've tried five times to get it right because the first time they utterly failed in getting it right. Um, okay, now one of the other things that you see with the Reformation specifically is that the Reformation will start undermining how people see leaders. Before this, everyone saw the leader, the king, as a representative of God and unchallengeable. Like just, okay, they're in charge. Now, don't misconstrue what I'm saying. And I don't want you to, on a test, ever go, the Reformation happened and then everyone never believed that the kings had power from God anymore. That's actually not true. But what it did do is it allowed people to question if rulers that were bad should remain in charge. Before this, people that had bad rulers, the mystic would just say, that's just God punishing us for our sin. So he gave us a mean, terrible ruler. Now, many people are like, mm, maybe these mean, terrible rulers shouldn't be rulers. Now, don't get me wrong. By the time you get to the religious wars and the Thirty Years' War specifically, the Thirty Years' War will kill a third of the German population. A third. That's like a plague. By the end of the Thirty Years' War, the people are going, can I just have a strong ruler again? I'm sick of revolting and I'm sick of this war thing. Can we just have strong rulers? So, yes, they are starting to undermine leadership in a bit. But they're not getting rid of it. And honestly, when we get to the age of absolutism, and you guys may have known this term from uh, middle school. I don't know if you do or not. But they go back to a concept called the divine right of kings. And it's the idea that kings get their, derive their power from God. And that's kind of how they thought about it before the Reformation. And it's how they will think about it after the religious wars. But this is kind of the period of, of a loosening or a freedom period. The other thing is that Calvin's Geneva gives us a really good look at the Protestant work ethic, what a theocracy might look like, how Calvinists saw their role in changing societies and actually a blueprint for what the, the Puritans will try to do in England. So Calvin is living in Switzerland and essentially will, with a group of other Calvinists, 
take over the town of Geneva over time. And they will all become members of this town council that create a Calvinist theocratic society. And you guys read this in your close reading and it's very fun, right? Or no fun. It's the no fun zone. So, you know, no colorful clothing. If, you were, if you're wearing colorful clothing, you can get fined. If you're, if you're dancing, you could get fined. If you're giving someone a beer or, get, you know, selling them a beer, you could get fined. Uh, if you're gambling, you could get fined. All of these things have escalating things to eventually you go into jail or the consistory. And the consistory is basically the place where they uh, change your mind about things. So they put you in there until you decide that what you did in the first place was wrong. And then they let you out. Um, but this whole theocratic thing, what the Calvinists believe is, well, we're going to live our life in a very pure way. And if we do so, we could change society from within over time. Um, so what ends up happening in Calvin's Geneva specifically is that you'll see, um, he will start, the Puritans later will start modeling themselves specifically after Calvin because the Puritans after the English Civil War will win with their new model army and the leader of Oliver Cromwell, who's actually a really smart leader. Um, but what he does is he, once he takes over, he goes to a theocratic rulership as well. And he's doing this in England. Now, in England at the time, this is one of the most uh, liberal societies probably in the, in the European world, meaning that people were used to having fun. And then Cromwell comes in and he just shuts down all the fun for about 10 years. And then Cromwell dies. And when his son takes over, he's not charismatic like Cromwell was. Cromwell was actually very charismatic which means someone that was very easy to follow because he had something about him that people were just kind of drawn to. Well, his son doesn't really have that quality. And he tries to continue on what his dad is doing. And he's essentially chased from office very quickly. And the English will beg for a king to come back. And this is after they will be the first European country to behead their king under Cromwell. Cromwell will do what we call regicide, where you kill a king. Um... And after that, they will be begging for a king to come back 10 years later. And the Puritans will be chased out of England. And where will many of them go? The New World. And they will do colonies in the New World like Plymouth Rock. You guys remember that from uh, middle school? Well, the Puritans, they go to Plymouth Rock. They start their whole thing. And, and that's all very Protestant work ethic. Work really hard. Plymouth Rock does a lot better than Jamestown. Because they're working really hard. God's going to bless me if I work really hard and I'll have money. Which they do. Um, and it's the same idea in Calvin's Geneva. If you're working really hard, God will bless you. And because God is blessing you, you will have money that will show you that God is blessing you kind of thing. It's kind of a cycle thing. Now, I'm going to go over uh, Calvin's predestination theology. And the reason that this is important is that this becomes kind of underlying factors for a lot of things you're going to need to know over this year and next year when you get to APUS. So Calvin's, the, the thing that we do acronym-wise to describe his views on predestination is TULIP. Now, I will describe each of these for you, but I'm going to give you kind of the, the basic version of this and basic line of thinking from a philosophical perspective first. Now, here's Calvin's line of reasoning. And you may want to look at me while you're doing this because I'll give you time to write this down too. Calvin thinks that if, because in the Bible it says, I am the Alpha and Omega, which means beginning and end. So if God knows the beginning from the end, uh, then he is also the one who created everything. Then he knows the choices people will make. Therefore, according to Calvin, and there's other scriptures that he will allude to in this, he believes that we actually don't really have free will, but we're more on a track. Because he are, if God knows the beginning from the end, that means that he knew what people would choose. And if God is all-knowing and all-powerful, then 
technically, under Calvin's ideology, he will pick the people that are going to choose God. Meaning that, in, in his little uh, uh, acronym here that we have, total depravity means that you are a sinner. All of us are sinners. And this comes from the fall of man. So Adam and Eve. When you have the fall of man, all of us are sinners in total need of a savior. We cannot save ourselves. That is total depravity. He then says unconditional election. And it actually comes from a Bible verse in the New Testament that says, I'm paraphrasing. It says, to whom much is given, much is required. And the other thing says, uh, many are called, but few are chosen. And the idea of many are called and few are chosen is his concept of unconditional election, meaning that God calls all of us, but only chooses the ones that will follow him. And that is unconditional election. So in his mind, the word that you should know is the elect. What Calvin believes is that there are a certain amount of people that are God's elect, that he chose from the beginning of time, to the end of time that will choose him. Limited atonement means that only a certain amount of people can be saved, that not everyone can be saved, that only a certain amount can be saved. Irresistible grace means that if you are the elect and God calls you, that you cannot resist him, that you will just become part of the elect. And then preservation of the saints means that when once you are saved, you are always saved. You cannot be unsaved. Now, here's how Calvin gets around people that possibly do things that are terrible and need to go to hell. Let's just, for example, say someone in Calvin's Geneva who might have both parents or Calvinists. They're really good Calvinists. They do everything right. Everything's good. But their child, who grew up in a Calvinist situation, becomes a terrible uh, robber thief and starts killing people. What Calvin would say is they were never elect. He would say they may have been called, but were never chosen. And that's what Calvin would say. So in his mind, anyone that decides to go away from the faith or not become a Calvinist anymore, he would just say they were never chosen. They were never part of the elect. They may have been trying to be, they, they may have wanted to be at one point, but they never were. Does this make sense? I know this seems like a kind of easy way out for him because you can just be like, well, if you don't agree with Calvin, you just leave. And he's like, well, you weren't elected. It doesn't matter. I realize that sounds like an easy out. Yes. No, he said that this was a personal thing between uh, you and God because only God could know. Because God is all-knowing and Calvin is not. Yeah. Um, now, the groups that break off from Calvin and, and the most important ones are and, and that have a lot of these qualities to them, very similar qualities, are someone like the Puritans and in France, the Huguenots. Um, now, one of the other concepts that the Calvinists really pursue is iconoclasm. Iconoclasm. Uh, what iconoclasm is, is when you go in and destroy icons that you see as heretical. So if you go to a Calvinist church, same with Lutherans too, and I've actually done this on a short answer before, giving you a, the inside of a Catholic church and the inside of a Protestant church and tell me the difference. And they, they're actually really easy to tell the difference because in a Catholic church, it's very um, bright and vibrant and stained glass windows and art all over the place. In a Protestant church, there are blank walls. There's very few icons. It's just pews and white walls. It almost looks like a hospital. In a Calvinist church, it's probably the most pure. Like a Lutheran church might have a couple of things. It might have a cross in there or something like that. I don't know. Um, I haven't spent a lot of time in Lutheran churches, but in Calvinist churches, it's just pews and white walls because they don't believe that you should ever worship an icon. 
and that becomes a problem for them. So the Huguenots in France during the religious wars will start going in and breaking stained glass windows in like Notre Dame Cathedral, breaking uh, and destroying things throughout other cathedrals throughout France to the point where they become a problem. And that's part of the reason why later Louis XIV will go back to we are Catholic again. And if you're a Huguenot, you're going to leave because he doesn't want to fight religious wars anymore. He's like, we're Catholic. That's it. Um, now, the Calvinists are very against and the Puritans were the same way. They're very against the showy stuff. Right. You guys read their laws. You're not even allowed to wear bright colors. Right. Uh, so work really hard, wear black or brown clothing and just be simple and wealthy and do it again and do it again and you know big families and communities and things like that it's a very successful recipe to be honest is it a super fun recipe i don't know maybe for them i don't know though because i've never lived in that situation but the the group today that is probably the most similar to this ideology is someone like the amish it's a very opt-in society right if you're an amish person and you don't want to be amish they just kind of go I and that's unfortunate because I'm sure many parents that have children that are Amish that those kids don't want to be Amish or have a Amish lifestyle that's got to be hard to let them go but this works really well when people opt in it's really doesn't work when you force it on someone else like the Puritans try to do in England when the Puritans are like we're gonna be this the English are like, uh-uh, no, we're not. Um, and that doesn't work. And I would argue, actually, that this type of system is a lot like communism. It works really well in small groups that opt in. It doesn't work very well in large groups that it is forced upon. And I think that that's a fair equivalent on this one. Um, communist ideology is not flawed in a small group. And actually many of the first communist groups in history are like old Native American societies that are more communal living. The, the concepts in Native American societies are that you actually don't own property, that the tribe owns property. Now in the West, one of the number one things, natural rights that were described by the enlightenment thinkers was property as a human right. And if you believe that as your tradition, communism's a tough sell for you. If you believe that property is your right. Because in a communal living system, property doesn't exist. Property is a communal right. Meaning that if I need something and you have it, you need to share. I don't know about you, if you've ever tried to deal with three to five year olds, that is not a natural human instinct to share. I would argue that it's the opposite. I have a three and a five-year-old, almost a three-year-old. Uh, I didn't need to teach them how to be selfish. They knew that on their own. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to teach them how to not be selfish, which I would consider to be more of a learned practice. Selfishness is pretty easy for us. Yeah? Why do you think it worked? Um, okay, so just so just to show you from a geographical standpoint where Calvin is and, and uh, who is agreeing with him, much of Switzerland is Calvinist. Much of France is actually divided into a number of different Huguenot groups, and then eventually the Puritans will go there and then leave because they will be booted out. Now, in France, this is all of the regions by about 1600 um, that have Calvinist churches. That is a lot. Okay, and if you're the French king, who is Henry IV, going to be Henry IV, who was a Huguenot, who converted to be a Catholic to take the throne, but said, no, 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 it's okay if you're a Huguenot, that's fine. Two generations later, when you get to Louis XIV, he's like, mm -mm, no more. We're getting rid of the Huguenots. I'm done with this religious war problem. And to be fair to him, he took over when he was four. And when he took over Louis XIV, he was dealing with the Fronde, which is a bunch of uprisings against him and royal power. So from the very beginning of when he took over, he's in a fight. From the very beginning. 
and he ends up becoming the greatest ruler probably in French history. But he does get rid of religious tolerance. He's like, we're going to be Catholic, and that's it. I am not dealing with this anymore. Um, and that's going to be the trend in Europe uh, of the absolutism period. So that's where I wanted to get to today. Tomorrow, we're going to finish up the Catholic Counter-Reformation. So we're going to look at how they react to the Protestant Reformation, how they need to fix themselves going forward if they think they need to. Um, so today, we'll just get through your Protestant um, or your Reformation dinner party project stuff. So I'll go over that in a second. So in Reformation Europe, what we start to see is the separation of different regions that are going to become predominantly Lutheran, Calvinist, and Anglican and separating themselves from the traditional Catholic Church. The group that becomes Calvinist is mostly in France, and we realize that while France still becomes the majority Catholic, and even though Henry IV, who is known as a politique, was a Huguenot to start, who eventually flips over to become a Catholic, what you realize very quickly is this division becomes very commonplace in both France and the Holy Roman Empire. Um, you also start to see that in England. And this group right here, which are, we call it Calvinist, is eventually going to be shot off into which branch of Calvinism? Starts with a P. Puritans. And that group, over the next hundred years, becomes incredibly wealthy due to what? The Protestant work ethic. You guys are doing excellent. This is good. Um, so the Protestant work ethic kind of contributes to this uh, expansion of wealth, both in England, in the Netherlands, and the Western Atlantic region of Europe. So if we're talking from a historical perspective, again, if we look at Europe here, the majority of wealth in Europe before the Reformation was down here in the Papal States of uh, Venice and then uh, Rome, essentially. M most of the money was there and in Florence. And eventually, as time moves on, Money starts going this way. Uh, and Spain should be making money because they have accumulated the new world, <laughs> Latin America, and essentially will be amassing ma massive amounts of silver. But at that time, Philip II, who eventually will become both the king of Portugal and Spain by the end of this, he spends all of his money on trying to re-Catholicize Europe. And so he's just dumping money into armies, silver into armies, to the point where this portion of Europe, now it just looks like a massive lines, this portion of Europe gets what we call hyperinflation. And hyperinflation is where you, your money supply gets just flooded with capital or paper or silver, doesn't matter what you're using. Um, and there's so much of it that the actual products that people are buying can't catch up. So the, the other situation of hyperinflation in history that's probably the easiest to point out is Germany after World War I. And what happens with Germany is they just, to fix, no, not Hitler's, that's not, no, mm -mm. Um, no, not yet. He fixes this problem. He doesn't make it. So what happens after World War I is that the Germans decide they're going to start paying back loans by essentially just printing money. Like, we'll just print more paper. It got so bad in Germany that people were, for lack of a better way of explaining it, having to take a, a wheelbarrow of money down to buy a loaf of bread. Like, it was ridiculous, the amount of paper that you had to just bring. And here, this is one loaf of bread. I think at one point, it was something like a million marks was a loaf of bread. That's ridiculous, right? At this time, also in Germany, it was cheaper to burn the money than buy firewood. And you were probably actually doing them a favor if you were burning the money because there was so much money in the money supply. Um, and that's what Philip did to Southern Europe. He just pumped capital or paper, and in his situation, silver, into the Southern economy, and it created this version of hyperinflation. Now, as far as we're concerned, and this is the stuff I want to just kind of go through very quickly today, the Catholics have to deal with the fact that people are challenging both their authority, but also the fact that they have issues within the Catholic Church that need remedied. 
And this doesn't just go back to the Protestants. Before the Protestants, which group of people also challenged some of the Catholic Church's doings at the time? Remember the Christian humanists? People like whom? Erasmus? Sir Thomas More? Uh, Sorry for my handwriting. It's really good today. Um, Erasmus, Sir Sir Thomas More. Erasmus writes in the praise of folly. In his book, he is roasting the Catholic Church for all sorts of different sins and, and mischievous things that they are doing to the point where he sees the, the concept of the Catholic Church as redeemable, but the people in charge as being almost unredeemable. He, he at one point even puts the Pope going to hell. He writes this whole thing about how the Pope gets to heaven and or gets to the gates of heaven and says, hey, Peter, let me in. And Peter says, I don't know you. <laughs> I've never met you. And in a way, Erasmus is saying, yeah, you're supposed to be leading the church, but you are not saved. You are not a Christian. You are not a Catholic. Um, And so it's not the first time that the Catholic Church had a challenge to its doings at the time. One of the other things that we saw that was a real danger at the end of the Middle Ages, and we talked about this earlier in this class, was the fact that the Catholic Church had simony and pluralism and nepotism all going on at the same time. And there's a big brain drain just because people are dying. Um, because of the Black Plague and because many of the Catholic Church are giving last rites and other things like that, they're also getting plagued. They're dying to the point where you have people in the Catholic Church who are becoming priests that can't even read Latin. And that's a problem if you're doing services in Latin because that means you can't read the Bible because back then it was illegal to read a Bible in English if you were a Catholic. And so you couldn't read the Bible. And what you could do in a service is just maybe recite something that someone else told you you had to say. But that's about it. Do you think you're doing very good work as a priest if you can't even read the Bible? Probably not. And so the Catholic Church knows they have problems, but they know that they can, they they believe they can fix those problems if they kind of go back to the basics. And so they will reaffirm their doctrine at the Council of Trent, meaning that all of the stuff that we believe is correct, but let's clean up the stuff that we know we can clean up. And in the process of doing so, they basically do three things to combat the Protestant Reformation. And here they are. The first thing that Pope Paul III does is he commissions Saint, who eventually will become known as St. Ignatius, who at the time was Ignatius of Loyola, to create universities and re-educate the Catholic Church. The goal here, of course, is to combat and fight against a really strong Protestant Holy Roman Empire that is at the time really out-educating the Catholic Church. Someone like a Martin Luther and the followers of Luther are, for the most part, pretty educated. And they're reading in English, so they're reading in the, or not in English, in German. So they're reading in their vernacular. And the English up in England are reading in English, so they're reading in their vernacular. Uh, So there are a number of more people in the Protestant world that are educated than in the Catholic world. And so it's up to Ignatius to kind of try to re-educate the Catholic Church, which is why the Jesuit order to this day sees that as their commission, is to focus on education. And that's why even today, if you looked up Jesuit universities or Jesuit high schools, you would find a a number of them even in California, which is obviously way farther away from Rome where this started. The other way that the Catholic Church responds to the Protestant Reformation is through the Baroque art era. Um, I talked about this before when I talked about Rome, and if you walk the streets of Rome, you might see a a cathedral from the Middle Ages, and as you walk to the front of the cathedral, you'll see this nice little facade on the front, and that facade is done in a Baroque architecture, and it's meant to just be very inviting and bring people into the space. Uh, They also started commissioning a number of sculptures that were Baroque and very, at times, even risque. Remember we talked about the uh, ecstasy of St. Teresa? So you had that sculpture of St. Teresa being plunged through the heart by an angel and falling desperately in love with Christ. And this is an altar piece. And people are, it's almost like saying a very sensual piece on an altar. And people are going, wait a second, this is different than the Catholicism that I grew up with. Um, 
And so they're, they're kind of trying to invite people back into those spaces. And then they're also doing it through overseas missionaries in the New World because both, again, Philip II is going to be eventually in charge of both Spain and Portugal, which control the New World at this point, at least the southern portion of the New World. So let me just quickly show you what the Baroque architecture looks like because one of the places that actually was commissioned by Pope Leo X and then over the next few papacies it will be built Someone like Michelangelo is actually one of the predecessors to the Baroque era and many other architects like Bernini and Borromini and others that worked throughout Rome at the time will pick up the work that Michelangelo had done. So this is what St. Peter's Cathedral looks like. This is the, the cathedral itself. But the space that Michelangelo and then others create is uh, right here. Let me show it to you so that you can see it. And it's meant to actually make you feel a part of something much bigger than yourself. And so when you walk and you stand there in, in this space, it's a very large circular space that actually comes out of a very almost square space. So let me show you if I can show you and uh, see how the, the bird's eye view of this. And it's supposed to be incredibly inviting. But at the same time, when you walk into that space, you almost you don't feel insignificant, but you feel small because it's a very big space, but it also makes you feel part of a community. And that's really the basis of a lot of this Baroque architecture is to be very welcoming and communal. Um, and so that's the way that St. Peter's Cathedral is built. Uh, here's just a number of different other examples of Baroque art and architecture. This is inside of St. Peter's Cathedral, which is all also Baroque architecture. One of the ways that I used to describe it to my students is I would say the Baroque era is pretty much the bedazzle me period of art. You just kind of throw gold on it and you're good because it makes people kind of feel like, oh, that's really pretty. Let's go look at that. Uh, that becomes really typical of Baroque architecture. The person who probably is the most uh, commonly used piece of Baroque architecture is actually not St. Peter's. It's Versailles. So if you've seen the Palace of Versailles, it is this monstrosity of French uh, gold and, and wealth built under Louis XIV. And I'll show you that when we get to the absolutism era. So a lot of times people introduce Baroque architecture and art during the absolutist era, but really it starts at the end of the 1500s and kind of bridges towards 1650, somewhere around there. So, and that really is going to be a Catholic response to a lot of this stuff. Now, going back really quickly, the last slide I want to go through has to do with the piece of Augsburg. So, Charles V, who was the king at the time of Spain and considered probably the greatest king of Spain, is also the king of the Holy Roman Empire at the same time because he just kind of lucked into a number of different inheritances at the same time. And when he did so, he now has a lot of subjects that are Lutheran because the Lutheran church is becoming a thing in the Holy Roman Empire. And so he has to find a way to deal with that. Um, and because the Holy Roman Empire is so divided, there's at one time well over 300 separate regions within this area, he decides eventually to sign the Peace of Augsburg, which will give a small amount of tolerance to Lutherans because it legitimizes the Lutheran church as a legitimate religion. And in the process of doing so, makes it so that if you are Lutheran or you're Catholic, you could live in a Lutheran place or you could live in a Catholic place. You kind of have a free movement to go to one of those places. But it's not tolerance in today's terms where it's like, oh, I'm Catholic, but I'm living in a Lutheran place. They would not so much like that. Uh, you would be probably forced to leave. It's more tolerance that you get to leave, I guess is the best way to put it. And so Charles signs the Peace of Augsburg. Now, when Philip II takes over, which he takes over very quickly after Charles V, Charles V signs the Peace of Augsburg and basically rage quits and goes and does his new thing. And when that happens, that's when Philip II comes in and Philip sees his job as I'm going to re-Catholicize Europe. And we talked about him already earlier today. He's the one who hyperinflates the southern economy by trying to re-Catholicize Europe. He's building the Spanish Armada a couple times to invade England. He's trying to invade the Spanish Netherlands because they keep trying to go to Lutheranism or Calvinism. He tries to deal with the Swiss. He tries to deal with other ports of the Holy Roman Empire. 
he thought he should be called Philip the Pious, meaning I'm going to be the person who brings Catholicism back and I'm a very pious person. And he builds a castle at the time called El Escorial, which is about 30 miles outside of Madrid. And it's built as a reference to St. Lawrence. And St. Lawrence, remember him? He was in uh, The Last Judgment. I talked about he was the guy who was filleted or uh, he was uh, grilled alive. So remember, he essentially barbecued. Um, well, the El Escorial is built, if you look at it from the air, air view, it's built in a reference to a grill because it was built in memory of St. Lawrence. But he's building this. Um, and in that place, there's actually the Crypt of Kings and the Crypt of Infants. We talked about this before, where uh, many of the kings, uh, most of the Spanish kings are, are stored there. Charles V is seen as the greatest one. Philip II is the second ironically, because he's probably the reason that Spain kind of deteriorates from power in Europe. They probably should have been the dominant feature of Europe. They will not be because he so much destroys their economy. Um, But for us, what this does is it starts to signal some of the early tolerance bills, but it also will signal the beginnings of what will eventually become for us religious conflict and then religious war. Um, And that's what we'll be getting into more next week. Tomorrow, my goal is to get into the age of exploration. Uh, So we're going to briefly get into the Spanish and what they're doing in the New World. Uh, I probably will have you read a document in regards to the uh, Incans or the Aztecs and their relationship with the Europeans um, and how that goes, which some of you guys might have some background knowledge on. Some of you may not. It just depends. And then next week, we'll get more into the religious wars. So the end of this week and next week is us kind of finishing up uh, this particular unit, unit two. And today you're going to be working on your project after we finish here. So.